0: Hello and welcome to the House of Legends, where you can hear world myths and legends told by a professional storyteller. I'm your host Daniel Allison and this is episode 23. And today we have another special guest because I'm over here in Northern Ireland and I'm with Liz Weir. And Liz is kind of the don of storytelling in Ireland. She's the one who makes everything happen. I'm um, very grateful to have spent the day with her and to been out doing some storytelling. Liz, tell us how you got started storytelling.
1: Well, I suppose I grew up at a time when there was no TV, so stories were told in our house. Not necessarily folk tales, but stories of family history and so on. And then when I went off to start work, I was working as a librarian and they said to me, you have to tell stories to children, which was like, what? Um, I started off telling from picture books and then I met my first American storyteller, Bob Gash. This was probably, mm, I've been telling stories since like 1973. And Bob told me in America, people got paid money for telling stories. This was big news to me because in Ireland everybody tells stories and jobs are hard to find so I started putting down my books and telling stories without a book and then I got sort of moved to start a a storytelling club every month in Belfast from the 80s and I've been telling stories ever since really
0: great and can you tell us about a particular storytelling experience whatever springs to mind just some fantastic experience you've had can you pick something out
1: Well, I was children's librarian for the city of Belfast during what we commonly called the Troubles. And one day I went out to tell stories. And when I got to the centre, it wasn't there. It had been blown up overnight. There was glass, there was rubble. But the children were there for stories. So I put them up on a wall and started telling the three billy goats gruff, which had always been my favourite story when I was a child. And I I was in the middle of telling the story an armour plate at police Land Rover came down the street and my audience to a boy and girl hopped off the wall, picked up stones and started firing at the Land Rover with me standing there going, huh, I'm a librarian, I don't know these children, I'm not with them. But the minute it was passed, they came back and sat on the wall again to hear the end of the story as if nothing had happened. And that taught me something really, really important, that no matter how fast our society forces children to grow up, they're still children and children need to hear the end of the story.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And what's your focus now? I know you do lots of work um, with younger storytellers and you know helping other storytellers to get along.
1: Well, I suppose now storytelling has been very good to me. I've been telling stories for probably 40 years and I want to give something back. So over the years I've taken on apprentices interns who come and they stay with me and they shadow me and then I try and Push them out into the world. So I am lucky in that I have a, a private sponsor, Roger Armstrong, who sponsored the Armstrong Storytelling Trust. Uh, it's going to, we're going for charity registration, and I'm storytelling residents with all 96 libraries in Northern Ireland. So as that, I as storytelling residents, I organise storytelling events in libraries, but also out in the community often. Sending storytellers out to work with groups who don't have any funding, like day centres, groups for people with dementia and so on. So we've started now to apply for grants, and this is allowing me to bring other storytellers on board. And probably the most exciting thing in the last couple of years is to teach uh, the first sort of accredited storytelling course in Northern Ireland. It's Open College Network Level 2 course, and we've put 12 people through in the last two years, and we've got some really good storytellers coming out of that.
0: And what makes a good storyteller?
1: I get asked that a lot. Um, Obviously, the ability to remember and tell a good story. But I think what makes a great storyteller as opposed to a good storyteller is to know what to tell to what audience. I think that's one of the keys. Lots of people have really their party piece story that they can deliver, but maybe it's not matching the audience they've got. So I believe people need to have a really wide repertoire and they need to really put the work in. They need to do the work on it. They can't just hear somebody else's story and just soup it up, you know, soak it up and just regurgitate it. So, I like to think that what makes a good storyteller is to know what to tell to what audience because what you tell to a teenager isn't what you tell in a nursing home. What you tell to under fives isn't what you tell to 10 year olds, you know. So, I work with everything from preschool children to 103. So, I think you need to have, you know, if I'm going into a prison, I'm not going to tell what I tell in a women's institute. You know, so, I think you have to really ha- be adaptable. Some storytellers hone in a, on a particular age group or particular theme. I'm fairly broad based.
0: I've just done a little work in prisons and I'd love to do more. of What do you think makes a good session work in a prison if there isn't, if you can generalize that way?
1: Mm. Well, you have to go in with uh, no preconceptions. Telling stories in prisons in Northern Ireland is a bit different because I go in to work with what they call ODCs, Ordinary Decent Criminals. That would be your, you know, your burglars and your joyriders and that sort of thing. But in Northern Ireland, we had political prisoners and I went in to tell stories to them. And those were people that believed they were freedom fighters, not terrorists. And, uh, you know, I was working with people, some of whom had killed husbands of people I knew and... It's like when I go into work in hospice or a hospital, you have to set aside your personal feelings and just work with the person. So working in a prison generally is a really good thing to do because prisoners usually welcome you. It's pretty boring in there. And a storyteller, especially one who gives them a chance to share their own stories and not necessarily the personal narratives, but... These are people who we hope are going back into society, their fathers, their mothers, their grandfathers, their grandmothers. So you want to give them some idea of stories they can actually share with their families as well. So I, I love working in prisons and I get great feedback from it. I went into the women's prison here on International Women's Day and oh, as we say here, it was a great crack. It was good fun.
0: One last question. We said um, you get asked a lot what makes a good storyteller. What makes a good listener? How should a person listen to a story?
1: When it comes to what makes a good listener, I think active listening is really important. Um, Sometimes you look out at an audience and you think, are they with me? Are they not with me? Because some people can listen with no show of emotion then they'll come up and say, oh, that was brilliant. You feel like saying, it'd be nice if you could have given me some feedback. But you'll see people who, you see the heads nodding, you know they're actually with you. I mean, some places I go to people fall asleep because it's relaxing to listen. So I always think that, to be a good storyteller, you have to be a good listener because where I get a lot of my material is when I'm out talking to older people, um, sharing stories with other storytellers. So um, I think listening is actually even more important than talking. As I say, that's why we have two ears and one mouth. If talking was more important, we'd have two mouths and one ear.
0: Uh, let's have a story from you then. Would you like to tell us what you're going to do or do you want to go straight on it?
1: I'm going to tell you an unusual story and if you give me a chance at the end I'll tell you where it came from but I'll tell you the story first. Long ago in Donegal, there was a family that were called O'Connor. There was a father, a mother, wee boy called Sean, and a baby sister. Her name was Catherine, but they called her Katie. Babe in arms. They lived in a thatch cottage owned by the landlord. And of course, as in many stories, they couldn't pay the rent. And early one morning, the landlord's men came to put them out of the house. As they were standing outside, the mother with the babe in arms, she suddenly said, no, I've forgotten something. Can I go back to the house? And the landlord's man said, no, no rent, no house. And they set fire to the roof, and the family had to make their way to the workhouse. Now, the workhouse was a grim place. The parents were split up, men on one side, women on the other, children somewhere else. And within a few weeks, the wee baby, Katie, took a fever. She died, and she was just buried in a big pit with the other fever victims. And they say when the mother heard the news, the bloom went off her cheeks and within a few weeks, she herself was dead of a broken heart. Her husband made sure she was buried in the local churchyard, though there was no money for a stone. And he took his little boy, Sean, by the hand and they walked all the way to Derry, where they got on one of those coffin ships bound for America. All the way over, he told Sean stories about his mother, about his baby sister, sang him Irish songs, told him poems... And when they got to Boston, the man got a job working on the big high houses. This was long before skyscrapers. And Sean grew up immersed in Irish culture. And when he grew up, he went into the building trade and generation followed generation and the family did well. They were really hard workers. But at last, you know, they decided just about five years ago to come back to Ireland to find out where all these stories had happened. So the The current generation came back, and the first place they went, of course, was the churchyard. They found the location of the great-great-granny's grave, and they put up a stone. Then they went looking for the cottage. Hmm. The roof had fallen in, but there was a for-sale sign. They said, we're going to buy it. People said, you can't buy it. It's haunted. What? It's haunted by the noise of a baby crying at night. Nobody can sleep in that house. Even walking past it, you hear it. They said, it's our house. We're going to buy it. So they did it up, typical Irish cottage, thatched roof, whitewashed walls, beautiful coloured half door. And their daughter Kate was playing in the house. And those big old houses had huge chimneys you could stand in and look up and see the sky. And she remembered hearing a story as to high up the chimney there was a little hole in the wall where you'd keep salt to keep it, keep it uh, dry. Those old houses were very damp. And she put her hand in and found something and she pulled it out and it was a ragged piece of cloth wrapped around an old cheap tin locket when she opened the locket. There inside was a drawing of a wee baby and it said Katie, 1847 and she knew that's what the great-great-granny had wanted back in for. So they took that locket, they wrapped it carefully and they buried it in the grave with the great-great-granny and nobody again ever heard the crying baby after that.
0: Thank you very much for that, Liz. That's beautiful. Can you tell us a bit about the background?
1: Yeah, I tell that all over the place, but I I have to be honest and tell you, it's an original story written by a class I worked with in Donegal, Drumore National School. I talked to them about how to structure a story. I told them many stories. They were doing the famine and they created that story themselves. They were about nine years of age. I think it's a brilliant story. I mean, that could go down as a traditional story. But the best bit about it is the title. And I've asked many storytellers what title you would put on that. I've asked many teachers what title, and nobody's come up with as good a title as they have. And I don't know if you have any ideas yourself as what you'd call the title. Obviously, you can't call it The Crying Baby because that gives a game away. You can't call it The Farm, and it's a bit boring. Any thoughts yourself?
0: Um... <laughs> No, I, I really spend so long trying to think of titles. They're the hardest thing for me. I've got nothing.
1: Well, the title they came up with was the Chain of Memories, and I love that. The chain, the chain of the locket, and that's how our lives go, piecing together these links in the chain. Isn't it good?
0: That is very good. I'm jealous. Wow. Okay. Um, so we'll just wrap up there. Is there anything you've got coming up that you want to promote?
1: Well, I'm not sure when this is going on air
0: in a few days. Okay.
1: Well, obviously the big thing that's coming up is the annual Grand Storytelling Festival, which I am uh, mad enough to organise. We have storytellers coming. We have Daniel Warden from Wales, Ruth Kirkpatrick from Scotland, Sally Tonge from England, Marianne McShane from Ireland, and we're using about eight local storytellers as well, with events stretching all the way from Rathlin Island all down the Antrim Causeway Coast, all the way down to Island McGee. And we're having storytellers coming to listen as well as to take part.
0: Great. So if you can make it to Northern Ireland, make sure you get there.
1: The website is www.goastories.org. And everybody will be made very welcome.
0: Great. Okay. Thank you again, Liz. And we're going to wrap up this episode for now. And if you want to stay in touch with what I'm doing here in Ireland, um, go on the House of Legends Facebook page and, or the Instagram and I'll be pushing, putting pictures and stories up there. So that's all. See you next time.